Anya, aka Strangely Literal. And I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading from the Book of Shadow. I believe everything. Now you may be seated. This week, we're talking about the entire first season of American Gods. So what did you think? You know, for such a short season of TV, I think they did a really amazing job telling their story. I'm not very happy with where Shadow ends up overall, but I am looking forward to season two. I think they set it up really nicely. What do you think? I definitely agree. Um, Although I think it's less that I'm unhappy with where Shadow ends up and more that I'm unhappy with how they got him there in the second half of the season. Mm. Uh, I loved what they expanded from the book with Sweeney and Laura, but I wish it didn't feel like it came at the expense of Shadow's character arc. But I'm fairly optimistic that season two is going to correct course on that, just based on sort of like the plot structure from the book and where I think it's going. I would agree with all that. You know, after talking to those editors and it seemed like they shifted gears midway, I think a lot of the writing effort just like lost its focus on him. I still think that a lot of it has to do with just timing, that basically they had the story that they wanted to tell with Lauren Sweeney and they had already like gotten through Shadow's emotional and like character progression. And then they were like, oh shit, we need to prolong this for four more episodes. Right. You know, and they couldn't just sort of like leave him out of those episodes and then bring him back later. So it ended up being kind of a a structural problem that caused a character problem. Yep. So for this episode, guys, we have pulled like some articles. We got a lot of feedback. We're going to talk about kind of the structure of the season as a story itself. First up, we had an article that we pulled from The Nerdist by Amy Radcliffe. That was an interview with Orlando Jones. It's called Orlando Jones Explains Why American Gods Mr. Wednesday Needs a Queen. And so, you know, this is like all about episode eight, the finale, where he tells Mr. Wednesday, you need a queen. There are some really good quotes here. He talks about his motivation, kind of like he did for episode four in the prologue. He says, it was important for me to remember, and I think for Nancy, to impart that there has never been a war in human history that has ever been won without the support of women. It's not an issue Wednesday necessarily recognizes as he recruits allies. Nancy is attempting to always be the voice of the disenfranchised. When you're talking about American history, you talk about gender roles and ageism and race and sex. All of these things come together to create a truly powerful force of people and individuals who have a lot of information to impart. But we consistently say that isn't important as we watch bodies of men make decisions on behalf of everyone, as if the disenfranchised don't have an opinion or that they don't have anything to bring to the table because they couldn't possibly understand how intricate things are. I love that quote. I love the way it highlights the idea that Nancy is trying to get Mr. Wednesday to be more inclusive in recruiting people to the war and Wednesday is basically just so focused on finding him and people who he can easily identify with, like Chernabog, 
and getting them on board. Mm-hmm. And even with the Zariah sister, it feels like they had some kind of romantic history. Like he's tapping on his history with her. And it's not so much about like, oh, I need to get some ladies on board. Um, it's just like, oh, I could easily persuade you. Yeah, well, and even when he's recruiting Astara, like, he's basically, like, flirting and using romantic charms to try and get these white women on board. Mm -hmm. But he wouldn't be thinking about someone like Bilquis. She doesn't even seem like she's on his radar. And she's so old and powerful. I'm super excited for Nancy and Bilquis to play bigger roles in season two as uh, Orlando Jones has been heavily hinting. So oh, really cool. looking forward to that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. So at the end of the article, he says that uh, he's super excited about season two and Nancy is going to be very, very heavy. So cool. Like Amy, the uh, editor of episode three told us, you know, he had a whole nother episode that we didn't get to see. So maybe they'll tap back into that. I know that the original plan was to incorporate Anansi boys, which um, he's an important character in. So we got a related email from a listener, Nathan, uh, who said, I definitely got the sense that Bill Quist is being sent to absorb Shadow and get him out of the picture. I was sad to see a black woman's sexuality being weaponized, made a tool of aggression at the direction of a white male presenting character who has already treated the prospect of sex with her with disgust. And while I appreciated the lampshading of this through all the discussion of men being hateful and angry towards women's power, I still wish they hadn't done it. Also, I think it's worth making a comparison between Bilquis and Astara's stories. First of all, there are clear class and race components to their situations. Astara is also being weaponized by a man, but for her it is empowering. Emotionally, primarily, although, of course, Wednesday does literally empower her through sacrifice. On the other hand, we see that Bilquis is traveling alone by miserable Greyhound bus on her indebted mission. We only ever see Bilquis alone. Her worshippers are never her equals, and then we see her alone on the street and alone in the museum. But Astara is surrounded by people, constantly being interrupted by more guests. Yeah, so she's at the... At the center of the community, Ostara is, and Bilquis is at the margins. It's interesting. What do you think about what he says about um, Bilquis's sexuality being weaponized? So I can definitely understand his disappointment, but I also feel like it could potentially turn out to be a really empowering thing, depending on what she ends up being able to do with that. I don't know. I feel like it's kind of hard to judge something like that when it's at the very beginning of a plot line that we don't really know where it's going yet. Mm -hmm. I did really appreciate uh, the way he pointed out the difference in class status between Bilquis and Ostara, though. I mean, like, Ostara lives in a fucking mansion and she's having, like, the bougiest <laughs> upper class party I think I've maybe ever seen. And yeah, really juxtaposing that with the way that Bilquis ended up sort of on the street and just in like a much more economically depressed situation because she wasn't able to take advantage of sort of like the the white corporate structure and and tie herself onto that in the way that Astara has been able to with Easter. Yeah, because they both 
work for the new gods and to see the difference in their levels of prosperity does feel like a commentary that the show is making in some way. Bilquis is being dispatched for some mission. It might be to like, he he's positing that she's definitely going to try and have sex with shadow and kill him. We don't know if that's what's actually going to happen, but nobody is going to Ostara and saying like, use your power against Wednesday for us. Like it's just about celebrating her power. And, you know, like media seems to just show up to have fun or something to like enjoy the day. And then she finds out like, what the fuck Wednesday is here? What is going on? Yeah. Like they're, they respect Ostara in a way that it seems like nobody really respects Bilquist except for Nancy. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a great observation. I appreciate Nathan writing in with that. I wanted to um, get into the structure of season one overall. I was trying to think of the story of season one and trying to identify like a, a protagonist, an antagonist, how their conflict locks, and just try to figure out whose story season one is because. I think the way that we've been analyzing episode to episode, we're kind of assuming that this whole thing is shadow story. And when I look at the first season, it doesn't really line up for me. I'm not sure if you'll if you'll agree with that, but I'll I'll lay my case out for you. Oh, I definitely agree. I sort of have my own thoughts about how shadow could be a protagonist for the whole series. um, Sure. For the book. But he definitely doesn't work as the protagonist for just season one. Uh, He doesn't have a goal and he's not really the focus for most of what happens in the second half. Yeah, after those first five episodes, he kind of just drops off after we meet Mr. World. It feels like a lot of false starts after episode five, right? Where where, like he disbelieves, then he kind of believes, then he doesn't believe again. And it doesn't. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And actually, now that I'm thinking back on it, I feel like even in episodes two and three, we were complaining about him continually backsliding. Yeah. Um, but in compared to like the garbage heap that is his character arc in later episodes, in re- like now looking back on it, you're like, oh, that makes total sense. It's totally cohesive. Yeah. It holds together much better than this thing over here held with scotch tape and spit. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Whereas Mr. Wednesday feels like much more of a character that has a very well-defined goal and everything that he does is, is to accomplish that goal. And the entire story kind of escalates against his goal until he achieves it at the end. So, Okay, here's my thing. Mm-hmm. I see Shadow as sort of going from disbelief to belief over the course of the first five episodes. Because I feel like by the time he sees Mr. World in the police station, like, he's pretty on board. And then in episode six, the conflict becomes not about whether he believes or not, but about just being pissed at Wednesday. And I actually loved how in episode six, Shadow really starts to push back against Wednesday and and like really perceive that not just does Wednesday have an interest in like using him and not really care what happens to him, but he is like 
potentially actually doing things that are obviously bad for him. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, we sort of like covered the belief storyline and then we were moving somewhere interesting. And then in seven and eight, it just made no sense based on what had come before it. Yeah, because seven, we could just kind of dropped the story because I don't even think yeah. they're in that episode. Yeah. And then in eight, we do a we time just, jump. Yeah, we just reset real hard. <laughs> yeah. Also, seeing Laura again really disrupts him. I feel like it puts him off balance from the manipulation that Mr. Wednesday is like subjecting him to. And I should be clear, like, so I'm saying that Mr. Wednesday is the protagonist. That means that he has a goal. I think that his goal is to, as you said, to get Shadow to be a faith battery. He needs someone powerful to believe in him so that he can accomplish his larger goal of starting this war, you know, to whatever end that will go, whether it's to destroy the new gods or maybe to take over their operation. Who knows what his larger goal is? But his goal for this season is to get Shadow to believe in him. Do you buy that? Sure. I can't really argue against it. I don't have a better proposition. I think that makes Shadow the antagonist, but he doesn't have a strong motivation of his own. And really, you don't have to have an antagonist with a strong motivation. It's better for your story if you do. All they have to do is work against the protagonist. And if you watch episode to episode, Shadow really does do that once you understand what Wednesday is trying to do. Because even when he does make a snowstorm with his brain, Wednesday has to argue with him about whether that was even possible and what can you believe. And over and over and over, Shadow says to Wednesday, who are you? And over and over, Wednesday says, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And that's his goal. He wants him to believe him when he tells him. I also think that Laura is a secondary protagonist. Really? Yeah. I think Laura has these strong goals throughout the season. Um, you know, we've talked extensively about her kind of sense of dissatisfaction when she was alive. And then once she's dead, um, she's strongly motivated to restart their relationship in some very unlikely way. And then once again, Shadow would be the antagonist in that situation. And to solve that problem, she has this secondary goal of being resurrected. So she hooks up with Mad Sweeney to get to Easter's. I think she has a really nice arc where she is learning, you know, how to cope with her situation. And she has the very strong goal of trying to get back together with Shadow. And, you know, that's basically the shape of this season is Wednesday trying to get a faith battery and Laura trying to get her husband back. And Shadow is just everybody's antagonist. Yep. And he's not well motivated for anybody. <laughs> huh. I like that. And I like how it really opens up, I think, the narrative for him to figure out his own desires and take a more active role in later chapters. Like right now, everybody wants stuff from him. And I really am excited about him starting to develop some motivations of his own. Yeah. And I think for the beginning of the story, this isn't terrible for Shadow. I like what you said earlier about for the show overall, for the story overall, he could still be the main character because this could all be setting the table for what comes subsequently for his character. Yeah. I think it's interesting what will end up being the better model um, because my sort of 
theory for the structure was that Wednesday and Shadow are dual protagonists. Uh, Wednesday's providing the motivation and the goal, whereas Shadow is providing the emotional connection to the audience. They're basically almost never separate from each other, and their fates appear to be so intertwined right now that you can almost treat them as sort of like a single unit. Sure. Like one character, yeah. Yeah. So would the new gods be your antagonist? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it works very well really for explaining season one, but I was sort of trying Mm -hmm. to use that as an explanation more for like the book overall, as far as I remember it. It's uh, it's a cool idea. I like the two-person protagonist idea, especially if they split them up next season. Yeah. But they're still working towards the same ends or something. So now we're going to talk about, as we rewatch the episodes, just stuff that we noticed that really stood out. Like once you understand the shape of the entire story, things that jumped out to you. So hit me with your best shot. What do you got? <laughs> <laughs> so when I started my rewatch... I started with episode three because when I was initially watching, um, my boyfriend had watched episodes one and two with me, and then I ended up getting ahead to watch for the podcast. Um, And so he wanted to just start where he had left off at episode three. Mm -hmm. And so I actually started with the Mrs. Fidel prologue that was supposed to be the initial prologue for the whole show. Oh, interesting. And I I actually really liked that. And so I was just thinking more about what that kind of meant for starting off the show in a much more sympathetic and sort of subtle way than the Viking bloodbath. <laughs> right. And I kind of, I liked it. I also kind of like starting with the Viking prologue in the sense that Odin plays such an important role. And so I think in some ways it makes sense to start with Odin, even if tonally that's not a great match for the rest of the show. Starting with Odin really is what started me down that track of thinking of Mr. Wednesday as the protagonist of the first season. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's really like we start with him, you know, he he's there in America, but he's also completely powerless. And then by the end, he has taken away the food from all of America, or maybe a a huge portion of America, we don't know yet. So it was like a, a real arc in his power from the beginning to the end. Um, And I also, I remember us kind of complaining about um, just how over the top the Viking prologue was. And now in the context of the whole show, like knowing who Mr. Ibis is and knowing that this story really is being told by somebody as a narrative with a perspective um, and that, you know, the story that he's writing is not how it actually was, but how he wants us to feel. Mm -hmm. Um, And just thinking about sort of like putting all of the prologues in that perspective, like, it just makes you think about, yeah, like how much of what we see is accurate versus how much of what we see in all of the prologues is Mr. Ibis's perspective on it. Yeah. And I kept thinking about that seventh episode where we take a deep dive with Ibis telling uh, Sweeney's story and Essie's story when I watched the first one. And I remember how thrown out I was by the Viking prologue. And then when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, yeah, this isn't quite as crazy as all the stuff that happens in episode seven. This this totally fits in with this show. I feel very comfortable. Yeah. 
I thought the the series premiere, I liked it much better. Oh, yeah. Uh, having watched all of season one, like it didn't feel jarring or weird at all. And so the other thing that I thought was funny about the Mrs. Fidel prologue, when we first watched that episode, I made such a big deal about the role of like fire escapes because... There's that like amazing fire escape visual with Mrs. Fadil and Anubis, you know, climbing up to the the like sandy um, Hart Wayne station. I don't know what you call it, <laughs> like the desert scene. <laughs> and then you have the mystical fire escape that Shadow uses to get to the roof to go visit Zoraya Polnochnia. Nice. Yeah. Well done. Uh, <laughs> first try. <laughs> no outtakes. And and I would remember like I was trying to make make something out of like the like the rule of fire escapes in this episode, but they were actually supposed to be in completely different episodes. Oh yeah. I don't think I would have picked that out as being significant if they hadn't been like right back to back in the same episode. Mm-hmm. So that was just like some weird convergence. When you put that in the notes too, I noticed like I, I thought about it, the transition that Mrs. Fadil, like she has to walk all the way to her judgment. And then it seems like Laura is like there on the street and then just pop bam she's like in the desert with anubis she didn't have to walk anywhere oh yeah that's a good point it's like what the hell man like why does she get the (laughs) express travel i don't know if it's because like if especially if you compare those two afterlife experiences it looks like when laura goes there like the photographically negative version of mrs fadil like there's all these pinks and blues and browns when Mrs. Fadil is there, and then it's all like greens and uh, navy blues and blacks when uh, when Laura is there. So it's all inverted, and hmm. Mrs. Fadil has to walk her ass off, and Laura just gets to pop in. I mean, maybe it's not about effort and exercise. Maybe it's about. I mean, like, dying is a transition, right? And so going through this journey to get there, in a way, is probably, like, more comforting and easier to, like, process emotionally and mentally than just sort of popping in suddenly. Oh, that's a good point. So it was, like, part of her reward. Yeah, and and there's, like, a ritual aspect to that, right? It's like a pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, Laura has no sense of piety or respect for any of that, so... She gets to uh, take the teleportation express. Something that popped out to me in the first episode when I was rewatching it was the technical boy when we meet him. We know from the later episodes that he was sent there. He didn't just decide to go intercept Shadow that Mr. World sent him to deliver a message. Wait. Yeah. So do you think the message he was sent to deliver was basically the conversation that they had? And then Technical Boy went rogue when he decided to physically attack Shadow? Yeah, he's because he seems like he doesn't want to do the job that he's doing. And I think he doesn't have any respect for Shadow because Shadow's just another human. So I don't think he was sent there to try and kill uh, shadow or beat him up or anything like that because later on when media pulls him into the same situation she's like you fucked up and you're gonna fix it <clears throat> so that yeah. was clearly not what he was supposed to do but it did make me think that the new gods send out the technical boy to deal with black people like <laughs> oh my god you're totally right <laughs> because shadow and bilquis both get the technical boy treatment whereas I mean, I guess media also reaches out to Shadow, but That's true. kind of, again, tried to clean up Technical Boy's 
mistake. But yeah, but he's like definitely in charge of Billquist. That seems like to be his entire situation. Like he's the boss of her. And I wonder if that's what they were planning for Shadow. Like, hey, co-opt this guy, flip him over to our side and send him back to Wednesday and he'll feed us information. I mean, I wonder how much of it is a race thing and how much of it is just that technology is the easiest tool to co-opt people and like Bilquis and Shadow are the only people that we see being really co-opted. Yeah, it might be a coincidence. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. I would say maybe it's not that Technical Boy gets sent to deal with the black people. I think it's that like Technical Boy gets sent to deal with like the low-level people who they're manipulating via technology. But it just so happens that all of the low-level people that they're manipulating are black because the the white gods have this like higher standing or they've like already bought into the system and are already being elevated by the system. Right. Like with uh with Ostara and with, with Dark and Yeah. So it's like all the people who like aren't already being benefited by the system as it stands are the black characters. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way either. So I have no idea if there's anything actually here or not, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the moon coin that Shadow gets from Zoraya Polonochnia mm-hmm. and the sort of like sun-moon imagery contrast thing that might be going on. So basically, Shadow gets the coin in episode three and then has the checkers rematch with Chernabog and wins. And so even though I hate this, and this is like one of the things that I complain the most about, like maybe the moon coin helped him win, Uh. (laughs) but then like it disappears. Like we haven't seen the coin itself or like any reference to it or any reference to sort of like shadows luck Mm-hmm. Do you think the coin is going to come back? Do you think they just forgot it existed? <laughs> um, is there anything to the idea that, like, Sweeney gave him the sun coin, um, but, like, his name is Shadow Moon, so it wasn't meant for him. So then he ended up with the moon coin instead. Like, is there... And now, like, his wife has the sun and he has the moon. Like, I don't know. Like, I kind of want there to be something there, but I don't know if there is. I feel like I'm playing your role now. <laughs> You're I'm looking just, so like, deeply. reading too much into things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think a lot of this is, like, legacy from the book. Um, Neil Gaiman is so, so good at the set him up, knock him down uh, kind of style of writing. Like, it feels like a magic trick when you're done with his book. You're like, oh, shit, like everything. It's like clockwork. But it, part of the reason for that is because he sets up things really, really early. And then he gets you like super engrossed all along the way and you forget about it. And then at the end, he's like knocking them down. Boom, 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 boom. And you're like, oh, shit, this is amazing. And it's like, no, I just made you forget. I just I distracted you with my other hand for a while. It's like a coin trick. Okay, so what you're saying is I should just sit on it. They're doing different stuff with the coins, right? Like the okay. the sun coin does the same thing in the book functionally where it brings Laura back to life, but there's not a fight over it like there is in this one with uh, Sweeney and Laura. It's not mm-hmm. 
so central to the the mechanism of the plot, which I really like that it is in the show. And I wish that the moon coin was more important. But yeah, the coin did not matter very much in this season. And I wish that it had. One of the other things that I really liked was going back to episode three during the bank robbery. You actually get to see Mr. World peeking in on them as it happens. Yes. And then that sort of comes back in episode five in a really cool way. Yeah. In the um, closed circuit camera system, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. You can actually see him standing there. I also really like, I think it's in episode six where they're having the the fun road trip with Salim and Sweeney and Laura. And uh, I think Sweeney says something like, it smells like someone took a shit in the back of this taxi and Salim says someone did. And I think the first time I, when I was watching that episode the first time through, I was thinking like, oh shit, like Salim had some adventures between when he left the gym and, and when he showed up. But then if you, when you go back and you watch the original episode with his encounter with the djinn, the taxi had already been shattered by that point. Right. Um, <laughs> it was so, a callback. <laughs> yeah, it was a callback that I had just completely missed. <laughs> Yeah, I also thought it had like a very different feeling watching Salim on the side of the road being passed by all the cabs in New York City. Because I think when I was just watching it the first time, I was thinking, you know, like, God, all those racist cab drivers, like, this really sucks. I feel really sorry for him. But then watching it through this time, I think I had more of an appreciation for how, you know, if any of those cabs had stopped for him, the gin wouldn't have been able to pick him up. And that sometimes, like things that we think are awful and like bad luck end up actually being good luck and like making better things happen, which is kind of a spiritual thing about like providence and fate and all that. And so I, I kind of appreciated that as well. Yeah. It changes his whole life. And he's, he says after that, he's a different person. He's Salim, not Salim. Yeah. And I guess the other thing that I thought was so different the second time through is just knowing that Sweeney is the one that killed Laura totally changes the way that you read like his interactions with Shadow and his interactions with Laura. Oh yeah. Leading up to that. Like he is a guilty motherfucker and he's actually acting like one. Uh you just don't know the first time through. Totally. Especially the first time that they meet. It's yeah. so different when once you know that he, he seems desperate to tell Shadow like get out of here like stop dealing with this guy he will ruin your life yeah did you <laughs> did you pick up with sweeney like the day after when he after he loses his coin and he he's walking down the street and that guy stops to pick him up the guy asks him well have you killed anybody lately like you know as a joke and the look that oh my god that mad sweeney gets on his face he's like yeah fuck you yeah yeah that was so good <laughs> I just appreciate everything about Sweeney so much more after episode seven. And you you see yeah. all of that stuff baked into uh, his performance. It's so good. To that end, I pulled an interview that he did with io9, uh, Pablo Schreiber. Schreiber? Do we ever find out how we're supposed to say his name? And I don't know. I'll say both. Uh, um, in the Canadian way. We figured out he was Canadian, oh, so say it's Canadian. <laughs> sure. I'll tell you all about him. Yeah. So, so, Sorry, Vivian. <laughs> so 
Evan Narcisse did an interview with him, and uh, he said that Michael Green and Brian Fuller wanted me to know quite early on that I was responsible for Laura's death, and I was harboring a lot of guilt for it. So all the scenes that are in the season are colored by that. And you can, you really can tell in that first episode and in the third episode that he has a lot of self-hatred. He has a lot of animosity um, for Wednesday. Wednesday doesn't trust him at all. It just plays very, very differently. Where at first you think he's just a big jerk, and he is a big jerk. But like there's really good reasons for it buried underneath. Yeah. Also, when I was rewatching, I had the articles that we talked about in our episode zero in mind, and I was thinking about the sausage party problem, right? Of (laughs) the book Mm -hmm. is just all these male characters. The female characters are really marginalized. Um, They're not super important to the mechanism of the plot. And Fuller and Green were determined to fix that problem. And I feel like they did when it comes to Laura She's a completely like three-dimensional character and we love her and we've devoted a whole episode to her. But I don't feel like the other female characters really solve this problem. It feels very male-dominated to me still with the kind of chauvinism that we get from Mr. Wednesday and the assholery that we get from Sweeney. I just don't feel a variety of um, female presence in the show. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm super excited for Bill Quist in season two, because I I think there needs to be a counterbalance to Laura, and I'm really hoping that they write Bill Quist in a way that is up to that task. It's not it's not like a headcount thing. It's like you just said, it's a, a personality thing. I would love to spend more time with Media, who's like this very powerful woman, and see what her experience is in the New Gods and check out what's going on with Bilquis more. And even Ostara, like in the aftermath of this, will she be more powerful or like way less powerful because she like blew her load on her feast day and now it's she's her batteries are empty now or something like What's going to happen with these female characters? I want more. So hopefully they they can do that for us. Yeah, I was just thinking, I wonder to what extent media can even exist as a character, right? Because like every time we see her, she's in the guise of some other character. It's hard to know what she really is underneath all of that. Yeah, I know in the book, she has a kind of similar thing, but there is like a point where you get to see just the base her underneath oh, really? everything. Yeah, at one point in the okay. storm. So maybe they'll do that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about representation of Native Americans in American Gods. So there's a conversation on Twitter started by at Kante Zuya Win, who said... Dude, season one, episode five of American Gods is so fucked and anti-native. This whole show is anti-native. Where the fuck do I even start? There's like nobody non-native critiquing how blatantly anti-native and problematic the show is. Are they that unfazed by it? The commodified native imagery fucks me up. The fucking plot surrounding native people and anti-native narrative fucks me up. The plot of non-native people literally erasing us and then physically becoming us all while using our imagery and spirituality fucks me up. It's a literal, physical, and metaphorical consuming of the other, where in the past, primitive, dead, dying, free to replace, 
and either our gods left us or we left them, and that justifies and explains our genocide. It's our fault. We only exist to be replaced. I hate this fucking racist colonial-ass storyline. How the fuck do you have a story about American gods without Indian people on our land? So yeah, I read that and I was like, oh, that didn't even really occur to me and is such a good point. Yeah, you're kind of referring to that prologue of episode five, the animated prologue where we get to see Mm -hmm. the native people of America. And I think we pointed this out in the episode, but I think you correctly like pointed out to me that I was saying that, oh, it's interesting that these native people have no voice. They never get to speak for themselves. And then you were like, yeah, but it's that way with the Vikings. And I was like, oh, right. I mean, there's definitely an issue with like time. And I think what's being depicted in that prologue is way older than the other stuff that we're seeing Mm -hmm. in some, I mean, and also I like still don't really get that prologue. (laughs) So it's hard for me to be super angry at something (laughs) that like I fundamentally on some level, I'm just really confused by. I think what's more obviously problematic to me is just the lack of more recent native gods and stories, right? And the way that, yeah, native imagery is totally co-opted into the opening credit sequence mm-hmm. and the the way that the buffalo is used as a symbol with shadow. I'm like much more ready to to critique the show in the way that it's it's handling that and sort of like the native cultures that were existing at the time of European conquest and um, expansion. I mean, like, we don't, because it's not like they're, rep, you know, like, who the hell knows what humans were like 20,000 years ago? Yeah. Like, there wasn't writing any in any culture that far ago. So, like, everything is just so full of conjecture, regardless of where it is. Yeah, and, and the thing that they're adapting from the book there is, like, really explicit about that, how all of this is lost to time and no humans even know about this story of the, you know, the first crossing and who they worshipped. And so, you know, Neil Gaiman has total license to do whatever he wants. And he's just building kind of a parable about the themes in his book with that particular yeah. coming to America part. So I I guess the thing that, that gives me pause, though, is that there is like the at the end of that prologue, there is the role of the the buffalo, right? That like stabs mm-hmm. the woman. And then there's the buffalo that appears to shadow in his dreams And then there's like the role that Buffalo played in the native cultures that are still existing today and that um, experienced the genocide from the European conquest. So like, it seems like the book is trying to draw some connections there. I don't really know enough and I haven't thought about it enough to critique what it's doing, but I think it's definitely worth thinking about. Yeah. And and then if you notice in episode four, when Laura has to use the shuffling machine, her boss is a native and she works at a casino, which is a little bit of a stereotype. And there will be native people in the show in the future because it's a big part of the book. Mm-hmm. And the book Shadow is not quite so explicitly black, right? He's described as mixed race and yeah. some people think he's black and some people think he's native. And so um, it's I think we're we're meant to think that Shadow himself might be a native character in the book. 
he's not coded as native, you know, in his traditions or like his mannerisms or, you know, the things that he cares about or anything like that. In the book, he's coded in a very blandly American way, very middle of the road, pretty much white. And then the other characters who are Mm -hmm. native are very much coded native, where their political outlook, you know, is influenced by their race, their jobs, where they live, and just their entire attitude towards the general white culture in the book are all very heavily influenced by their ethnicity. And I don't know if the show will do that, but there's going to be plenty of opportunity to further explore uh, Native people on American Gods. But so far, I'm also not super happy with it. The White Buffalo is not in the book, so that's a choice that they made. And the white buffalo recurs, like you said, all those Mm -hmm. other times. It's also on that farm that they go to when Salim takes off, although it's dead. It could be the same buffalo. I kind of want it to be the same buffalo all the way through, but I guess we'll see. And then the Thunderbird in the opening really bothers me. I don't like that. That's like the last image we see, and I've never Mm -hmm. liked... Like, I understand where she's coming from because there is a really problematic narrative that's like very mainstream today that like modern native people don't exist that they've been like pushed to the reservation they don't get attention or resources they don't matter natives used to live here and now it's just full of like white people and immigrants and descendants of slaves it like obviously erases all of the the native people who are still currently existing here and so like i understand trying to push back against that narrative but i feel like the prologue in episode five is about something really different. Like, it's it's not about the Native people who were erased by European genocide and colonization. Like, the people that were in the Americas 15,000 years ago, like, they actually don't exist anymore. Like, none of the cultures that existed 15,000 years ago exist anymore. Like, the Proto-European, the right. Proto-Asian, like... Like, I can see how it kind yeah. of echoes the problematic narratives, but it doesn't strike me as particularly problematic itself. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. And I agree with with what you're saying. And I don't agree with the premise of the argument that's made that that story is somehow, you know, like, justifies anything about the European invasion and imperialism and wipe out the, you know, the genocide of native people. It's not about that. Like, I think that prologue is very clearly about the gods and how vulnerable they are and, and it's world building. Yeah. No, I'm really glad though, that this has been brought to my attention because it like wasn't even really on my radar. And I think I'm going to be looking at depictions of native people and sort of looking at either the inclusion or exclusion of native gods um, in the story much more critically because of this conversation. It's it's only right to criticize our pop culture and have it reflect our society. That's totally what people should yeah. be doing. I did want to point people to our website, shadowsandshamblers.com. We do have a section of the website devoted to reviews, uh, um, kind of a written blog. And now that we've gotten to the end of the first season we see that everything is pointing towards The House on the Rock. And I don't know if all of our listeners know that The House on the Rock is an actual place in America. And I live near it, and I visited there not too long ago. 
And I wrote up a blog post about it and put up a whole bunch of pictures and a little bit of video and talked about my experience there. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. So if you have never been to the House on the Rock or didn't know that it was a real place, that will give you kind of a glimpse into where we're probably going to start season two and give you like a little bit of a context for the book and for season two. And it was a crazy place, but it was a fun visit. Okay, so now we're going to talk about our favorite and least favorite episode or scenes of the season. So uh, so we'll start off with the bad uh, and end with the good. So Alan, what was your least favorite? Uh, I think the finale for me, it just like bungles the whole shadow arc. We talked about it in the the episode about number eight, how he seems to be like out of it somehow and he's not fully in control of his ability to make decisions. And so I don't buy his suddenly having faith. It just, I like how it sets up the next season, but it, I feel like it completely sacrifices the integrity of Shadow's emotional arc. It's disappointing. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, thank God there was so much great Bilquist stuff in the finale because that makes it worth watching. I mean, we talked about this earlier in the episode, but just like everything that happens with Shadow in this episode doesn't really make sense as building on what came before it. And so it doesn't feel satisfying or true to his character. Totally. Um, so what about your favorite? Oh, it's I mean, that's episode seven, the S.E. episode. I, I can't, you know, I can't even make it to the point where S.E. is a little girl without just starting to cry it's messed up like i know everything is coming like i think the first time we get an out of focus shot of mad sweeney with his shirt all open and he, he's like hey how are you doing you're gonna die i'm like oh god mad sweeney don't like i can't i can't even handle it. i love that episode it is the best emily browning's performance and Pablo Schreiber, like they stole the show, like the whole show for me, like they're the best thing about season one, in my opinion. I love them. What was your favorite thing? I think my favorite episode was episode six, the one with Vulcan and the Mexican Jesus prologue. I know a lot mm -hmm. of people thought it was heavy handed, but the metaphors totally worked for me and the social commentary like really hit me pretty hard. Um, and like some of that is probably my Buffy roots, you know, the like metaphor monster uh, <laughs> thing is something that I really appreciate. And I also, I really liked the way that the conflict between Shadow and Wednesday was developed in that episode too. Like we're really starting to see uh, Shadow become more confident, like moving around in this world and starting to confront Wednesday and really stand up for himself. I really appreciated that in episode six, and that was part of what made Shadow in episode eight so hard to take. Yeah. And then, of course, like one of my favorite scenes is just everything with Audrey, both in the first episode at and after the funeral, and then in episode four with Laura. Like, I just, I love how unapologetically emotional and sassy Audrey is. Like, she just gets to feel so strongly in the moment, whatever she's feeling. And, and Betty Gilpin does such a good job with that. I just, it's, it's definitely my favorite part. It's not the most important part, but it's definitely my favorite part. <laughs> it's fantastic. She's so good. So before we end, we want to share some listener feedback about the finale episode. 
from Cassie Mac on Twitter at M underscore the underscore beastie. So Cassie had some theories about Bilquis. Um, she said, in the ancient temple, Bilquis marked a woman's face. If it's the same one who she followed to America, maybe she was immortal until AIDS. Oh, yeah. Dis- I remember us. The yeah. disco scene felt like a reunion or rediscovery. Maybe she wasn't immortal, but she was regularly reincarnated, fated to join Bilquis in every lifetime, a gift from a goddess to her love. Uh, somehow, dying of AIDS stopped that cycle, or Bilquis had grown too weak by then. I'm not sure. Um, Cassie also says, I think Bilquis was being sustained by visitors to her altar back in Iran, and when it was destroyed, she lost most of her remaining power. So in that sense, like, her watching the scene of the temple being torn down on television was not just a sort of sadness or a nostalgia for the the good old days. And not just symbolic of her loss of power, but actually also her, her real loss of power. It's so interesting to point out that scene because they do linger on it where she takes somebody aside in that orgy scene and kind of anoints this woman. And I'm not sure that it's the same actress. I I wanted to, I remember this now that we're reading it and I wanted to pay attention to it and I forgot. <laughs> Sorry, Cassie. But, uh, but I love the theory that either this person was immortal or like fated to be reincarnated or maybe got thrown up into the vagina nebula and then drawn back out in some way, yeah. you know, like clearly this person was important to Bilquis and, and it seems more important than just a worshiper. Yeah. It seemed more personal. Hmm. So Cassie also had some comments about airhead shadow at Ostara's party. Um, <laughs> she said, I think this is intentional as it's quite obvious and pronounced like a light switch. The moment Easter touches him through to the end of the episode, he seems smitten and stoned. I noticed something similar after Wednesday's roadside exorcism. Shadow seemed intoxicated. A side effect of contact with gods. Um, I'm trying to remember the roadside exorcism. When was that? So that's when Wednesday pulls out like the little tree parasite. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that's more like a a side effect of having someone's like hand literally inside. Or I guess he was like mystically (laughs) pulling the uh, like summoning the tree to his hand. He wasn't like digging around as such. But yeah, he does seem to like have he he holds him and puts his hand on his chest and, and he says like, shh. And there's like a really powerful like sound effect and the music changes in that moment. Okay. Okay. So maybe there's something going on. Uh, I like yeah. that idea. Ugh, that That's so creepy, though, because then that's like a white woman putting the whammy on him in like a really gross way. Yeah. It's bad for the character, too, to do that in their moment of decision. If that's your main character, you don't want to zonk them out in the final episode, I think. Um, we also had uh, Kate tweet at us, uh, at K8Met. She asked, did Bilquis choose to leave Iran or did she follow her last believer? Because she ate all the rest. And this is kind of in response to, like we said, that she was the only god that chose to come to America. But maybe she didn't. Maybe her last believer chose to come to America and she's like, well, shit, I got to go with her. Like, I'm going to die if I don't do that. 
I like to believe that Bilquis was smart enough to know what was going on with the revolution and that, you know, like this extreme Islamic revolution was not going to be friendly to other gods hanging around. So she... Especially female gods. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think she chose to follow her believer. Yeah, I think we were right that she's the only one who chooses to go. But uh, we'll, we'll probably find out more about this, I think, in the second season. I don't think we're done with that story. Uh, also, we got a tweet from the notorious KRG at Glazebrook Girl. Um, she said, so was I dreaming or was the dating app created for Bilquis called Sheba? You know, it's kind of like the Tinder-like app that we get to see oh, for yeah. two seconds. Uh, she's right. It is called Sheba and it kind of has like a stylized face on it that um, is supposed to be like Bilquis's face. And also that Ethiopian restaurant that she sees her temple get blown up at is named uh, Marib. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but um, that's also another name for the Queen of Sheba. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah. So I think that's actually why she stops at that restaurant, because she notices the name and she's like, oh, this is like a place about me. Uh, And then she just happens to notice her temple get blown up. So that's not great. Also, I wanted to mention that um, Kelly, who has been so supportive of us um, from the very beginning and always gives us great feedback, has been doing some freelance writing work that I'm going to include a link in the show notes to about skincare. And if you like want beauty tips and stuff like that, you should follow her on Twitter. Um, She does these really great tutorials and all kinds of lessons about how to take care of yourself. Yeah. We got a tweet from at Tikva4U2 on Twitter, who was commenting about episode five. Is the relationship between Laura and Shadow love or worship? Their relationship seems to have flipped. He worshipped her. It's not just love. He has become a beacon for her path. Now he is her spark. Which I think is interesting, especially in context of, you know, like, the show kind of being about worship and the question that Laura asks Salim about whether he loves his god or is in love with his god. Like, to Mm. what extent is their relationship based on something that's more like worship or more like love and how that kind of switches after Laura dies? Yeah, and how much control she has over it, too, which is kind of going to be an important issue to understanding that. I really um, love that she pointed this out to us, that there's an inversion from when Laura was in live and after she died, and that it really was like she could do no wrong to him, and now he can do no wrong for her. Because even though he ostensibly rejected her in the fifth episode, she still wants to be with him in the eighth episode in the finale. Well, and she's still just singularly devoted to him, Mm -hmm. even without receiving any real love from him. And in the face of all the Laura Sweeney shippers, too. (laughs) Um, We got an email from Andrea, who was talking about episode four. Wow, there is so much there. I do not like Laura's character. In fact, she evokes a strong contempt in me. I dislike her. Everything about her character seems manipulative. And that is in addition to the fragile white womanhood others have written about. She lacks love of herself and of those around her, particularly Shadow. The times where she resorts to the hot tub with the get gone don't strike me as suicidal. She reminds me a bit of Kevin in The Leftovers. 
not wanting to kill themselves, but if it happens, meh, something new. Suicidal attempts become a thrill, and in Laura's case, they don't alleviate the void. So she's um, Team Anya. Yeah. <laughs> and and not just for that, she also writes regarding episode six. Wow, Anya gave me a woo moment when you pointed out that the Minutemen were worshipping Vulcan as they killed the immigrants and not the American Jesus they outwardly appear to worship. Jesus is a god of rebirth and resurrection, so death and rebirth are his attributes. Killing him, as you said, does make him more powerful. Osiris was killed and resurrected. The green man, green knight mythos, is a god who is resurrected. And thanks for pointing that out, because I had asked about if there were other deities who had resurrection as part of their myth and as a way of like gaining power. Mm -hmm. And then she continued, Odin himself died, sacrificed himself to himself on the world tree in order to be resurrected with a new perspective and a new life. Um, So thank you for your comments, Andrea. It's great. Those are great points. Um, We also got an email from Nathan uh, about the eighth episode. And he said, I think the thesis of this episode is don't trust gods. Uh, The name of the episode is a clue. Uh, Come to Jesus is a talk or a discussion where hard, uncomfortable, sometimes unwanted truths are imparted in order to steer the recipient away from dangerous behaviors. In this episode, we, along with Shadow and Laura, are hit hard with the very valuable lesson that gods lie, gods conceal information, and there's very little we can do about it. We see Shadow's very evident surprise when Wednesday lies to Astara about Vulcan's death and manipulates her using the power of the sword as proof for his lies. Penis power, I guess? Sad face? And then, of course, there's Laura learning that Wednesday killed her and has been conning Shadow for at least three years already. So, yeah, um... When we did the live tweet of that episode, pretty much all the women on the live tweet pointed out, and I did not notice this at all, that Ostara takes the sword and is like very gently stroking it the entire time. And then when Wednesday's like, so you want to come over to my team? She just stops and hands the sword back to him. And she's like, I got to go do something. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, you're totally right. Wow. I did not notice that at all. (laughs) yeah um i think there's some pretty clear symbolism going on uh what do you think about this don't trust the gods for shadow is this is this him just realizing this because you were saying that he realizes this more in vulcan i think shadow was becoming um skeptical about wednesday in a different way in episode six like no longer skeptical of his power that he is a god but skeptical in the way of like not trusting him because he's a god and i think yeah in the finale it basically brings laura and shadow more to the same position where that's concerned and kind of unites them in their distrust of gods and the way that they've kind of been screwed over by the gods. And Shadow still doesn't know about what happened to Laura that will, you know, hurt his trust even more whenever that secret gets revealed. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that's a pretty good read on that episode that the main theme there is that you can't trust what the gods do because even Easter in that episode is a betrayer of her team. Everybody's lying yeah. to everybody. <laughs> yeah. Definitely the theme. Cool. Well, I guess that wraps up our season one wrap up episode. So we want to take the time out to really thank everyone who has given us a rating and a review on iTunes. That's the best way for us to find new listeners. And we really, really, really appreciate that. 
So thank you to JP Soso and Generosity and Mobax816. And thank you also to Mandy Kay, who is the host of Pop Culturally Deprived and 30 Second Chew. Thank you to Other Blue Girl, who is the host of Famished and Feasting and Layback and Think of England. And I believe also Wonking Out and the te- Detective, the Doctor, and the Woman. And thank you to also Gypsy Book Nerd, who is also a host on Wonking Out and the Detective, the Doctor, and the Woman. And thank you to JLMO, who is the host of Clockworks and Way Too Seriously. Uh, we really appreciate you guys all taking the time to write out some very kind words for us on iTunes. And you can find all their shows in the show notes. So yeah. if you want to check out any of their shows, I'll have all of them in there. That wraps up the first season of American Gods and of Shadows and Chamblers. We'll be taking a break from American Gods until we get closer to the premiere of season two. In the meantime, you guys should check out our new monthly podcast called Hallowed Ground Storycast. This is going to be a once a month show about our appreciation and love for the power of story. So each month we'll pick a book, movie, TV show, or other piece of narrative that has had a big impact on one of us, either me or Alan or both. And we'll do our typical style of story analysis, but we'll also talk more about our personal connections with the work. You can subscribe to us through iTunes or um, whatever podcast service you use. Our episode zero is out right now. And our first episode, which is about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, is going to drop on September 1st. Yeah, it's going to be great. (laughs) Can't wait. (laughs) It's going to be so good. And if you have any thoughts on uh, the whole show of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or anything to share about how that show affected you. We're looking for comments to include from listeners, so you can either send us an email or record a voice memo on your phone and send that to us as well. We'll include some of those recordings at the end of the show. So until then, I'm Anya, AKA Strangely Literal, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at ChipperAllen. You can follow the show on Twitter at ShadowShambler, and visit our website at ShadowsAndShamblers.com. You can also visit HGStoryCast.com to find out more information about our new show. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit ShadowsAndShamblers.com contact, or send an email to contact at HallowedGroundMedia.com. And come join us for Season 2 of American Gods. Tell the believers and the non-believers. Tell them we've taken their podcast and they can have it back when they pray for it. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a creative commons non-commercial share alike license. Ha, 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 ha.